Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org and please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. So I'm purposely staying away from the triumphal entry. And John would get us there by verse 12. And so we're really not that far away. It is, for me, a shorter preparation, a shorter message in my preparation than normal. That means nothing to you. You might be thinking, great! It's a big day of football, and I can get on it quicker. Well... The inspiration of the Holy Spirit, whatever he, wherever he leads, we'll go there. But um, really just looking at three points, not a lot of text in these points, but significant things. And uh, I titled it, They Sought Jesus. This is one of the big things that I saw as uh, it comes in verse 56 of chapter 11 in John's gospel. They sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think that he will come or he will not? He will not come to the feast. So they were wondering about Jesus at this point. So we're coming to that final Passover feast that we know with Jesus's triumphal entry by the end of that week, though it began began with the people shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It would end with the people, same many of the same people, shouting, crucify, crucify him. And it would end with Jesus' death upon the cross, his burial. But then on the beginning of that following week, so we, we will go through one week in the timeline of Christ. We're almost there. And it'll begin with the triumphal entry, and it will end with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we have a lot of scripture to talk about during that final week, as we are in our 74th lesson of the chronological gospels. And here with John, um, he's kind of halfway through his gospel. And so he deals a lot with the final week of Christ and then uh, that of the days following the resurrection of Christ, but also Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about this. It is a significant portion of the Gospels talking about not only this final Passover, but the um, parables that Jesus gave, the teachings that he gave. A lot will be dealt with. Two weeks ago, when teaching from John's Gospel, we learned that after the resurrection of Lazarus, that Jesus left the area. So he was in Bethany, where Lazarus lived. Bethany, only about two miles away from Jerusalem to its east, slightly northeast, but east of Jerusalem. And uh, it was dangerous. In fact, the disciples knew that Jesus returning to Judea and uh, from the wilderness, basically, they were in a remote location where John the Baptist had baptized at the first. They knew that it could be life-threatening. In fact, Thomas said, well, let's go then and die with him if we must. So Jesus knew 
the circumstances of the time that he was in. He also knew that his hour had not yet come. And so he came, he brought Lazarus back from the grave, and then he departed again. In John eleven fifty three through 54, right before we pick up in our teaching today, it said, from then, that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country and near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And so he didn't return to where he had been prior to coming to Bethany, but now he went to another remote location. This time it was about 10 miles directly north of Jerusalem, but 10 miles directly north of Jerusalem has you climbing through foothills. And so I would assume that they didn't go a direct path, but if you were to fly from Jerusalem to Ephraim, it would be about 10 miles. And he stayed in another location, but he was busy. Uh, he told his disciples for a third time, according to Matthew 20, Mark 10, Luke 18, for a third time he told his disciples of his coming death and resurrection. He taught them about true greatness from Matthew 20 again and Mark 10. You can find this account there in those verses. He taught them what true greatness is and Jesus would later say, in the Gospel of John, I am one who sits among you who serves. So great, greatness is not about leading in the sense of commanding people to do this or do that, but to be servants of people. When he was making his way back to Jerusalem on the road to Jericho, and Jericho is north, slightly northeast of Jerusalem, and there's um, about 3,400 feet difference between the two. And so Jericho is one of the low places on the earth. And uh, it's been a continuous city for many years because of a, a spring that provides fresh water and has always provided fresh water. So even though it was destroyed, when Israel went into the promised land, the first city to be destroyed, it was rebuilt. It is one of the oldest continuous cities in our world, and largely because of that fresh water supply. But as Jesus passed through Jericho, he healed two blind men near Jericho who cried out to him for mercy. We learned about this last week. And again, this is found in Matthew chapter 20, Mark 10, Luke 18. He ministered to Zacchaeus. Only Luke tells us of this, who Jesus described as a son of Abraham. But he was also known as a chief tax collector. He was hated because he was a Jewish man collecting taxes for the Roman government. And so he was hated. He was considered a sinner, a great sinner, like if you wanted to talk dirty about someone, just call him a tax collector. It's like today we might say to someone, you dirty dog. Uh, it would be like, you dirty tax collector. You are despised. Well, only Luke tells us about this in Luke 19. And he also told, and we closed last week with the account of a parable that Jesus gave of a nobleman who went away to receive his kingdom and before his departure, he called his servants to him and he gave each of them a minus each or a mina each. 
Minus would be plural. He gave them a mina each. It's about four months wages. And he said, do business till I come. And the importance of this parable speaks about the fact that Jesus has gone to heaven. He has received his kingdom, but he's coming again. And the Lord has gifted his church, individuals within the church with talents, with gifts. And he has commanded us to do business till I come. And now we have three things remaining before the triumphal entry. And we're going to look at those three things today. A message I titled, They Sought Jesus. And the question, will Jesus come from John 11, verses 55 through 57? Jesus is anointing at Bethany. And John 12, verses 1 through 8, in a plot to kill Lazarus from John 12, verses 9 through 11. And so again, very short as far as the amount of scripture we have today. But reading from John's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 55, it says, And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Is Jesus going to come? Now both the chief priest and the Pharisees had given command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. So the command had went forth from the chief priests and the Pharisees. If you know where Jesus is, tell us we have to arrest him. So this caused the question of the people. Will Jesus show up or not? So it wasn't just the disciples at this point knew that it was dangerous for Jesus to be in Jerusalem. And it wasn't the fact that Jesus, he understood that it was dangerous for him. And at this point, he would say, my hour had not yet come soon. He will say, and we will read, my hour has come. But also the people knew that the religious rulers of Israel had it in for Jesus. And so they were wondering, will he stay away? Will he come to the Passover feast? They also came to purify themselves. And this speaks about being ceremonially clean, prepared for the Passover itself. And it's a Greek word that speaks to purify, to cleanse oneself from defilement. When Lily and I and a few others from the church went over to visit Israel, they had taken us in a subterranean and, and uh, Jerusalem has been built upon destroyed cities. And so Jerusalem had been there for a long time, Salem, uh, Jerusalem, and uh, it's been built up upon destroyed cities. And on the south side of Temple Mount, they have dug down to street level of the time of Christ. So you can see some of the stones that were cast off the top of the Temple Mount by the Romans when they destroyed Jerusalem. But you go under, and it's kind of cool, but you go under and you think people are living above you, and they've dug out underneath them. And uh, it's like first century Jews lived here. And, and the point I'm getting to is that we visited a ceremonial washing tank or bath, and it kind of reminded me of 
growing up in a Baptist church, we had the baptistry in the back, and some of the Baptist churches had a way in and a way out. And so you walk down one side and get baptized and come out the other side. Um, and that's how this tank was. And it was basically a ceremonial washing. It wasn't a bathtub. And they would merely walk through the water and come up the other side. And that was part of their ceremonial cleaning or cleansing for Passover, preparing for Passover. If you look up on Jewish websites today, they speak about cleaning the house of leaven. And we'll talk about this again uh, right before Easter, when we spend a week in prayer and fasting, and we look at the final week in that account as we've customarily done for years here. But I, this is the first time I really looked into it and and read a lot about it, how they go through the house. To me, you want to get rid of the leaven in the house. We have some in our cabinet and we have some in our fridge. So all Lily and I need to do is go to the cabinet, go to the fridge, get the leaven and get it out of the house and we're done. That's not how it is. In the Jewish mind, it's wherever you've eaten a cracker or a cookie. So do anybody ever eat crackers or cookies in their living room (laughs) on the couch? So that means like spring cleaning 101. For them, have you ever had a snack while you're reading a book? So you have to know the books that you've read during the year that you can go like this and make sure that there's no crumbs of leaven in there. And so you look at today, the preparation for Passover, it has a lot to do with any crumbs that could possibly be in the house, maybe between the pages of a book or the cushions of a couch. And that's part of their cleansing process. They really didn't talk about the ceremonial cleaning in the sense of the purifying of oneself. I didn't see that mentioned, although that should be part of it. So we speak about the ceremonial cleaning or cleansing. We find this word, hagnizo is the Greek word, and it's in Acts 21 in verse 24. So Acts 21 verses 23 and 24 This is when Paul went to Jerusalem for his last time. He had had a vow to the Lord, and he was going to go to Jerusalem that he could complete. It seems to be a Nazarite vow that he had taken, and he wanted to complete it there. And so the church instructed him, Acts 21, 23, Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and purify them. So, Hagnizo, the same Greek word is used here. Be purified with them, pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And this is the thought of the Nazarite vow. They had to shave their heads. That all may know that those things of which they've been informed concerning you are nothing. And that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. And so it had been said that Paul didn't keep the law. And so the church was saying, who was part of the Jewish faith in the city still, the apostles remained, the persecution had been bad, but not severe enough for the church to totally exit. And they said, Paul, do these things that all may know. Now, it didn't work out. Paul 
uh, got arrested in the process of doing that. But that's another account for another time. We won't look at that today. But it also speaks about the same word, hagnizo, is found in James 4.8. So to be morally pure, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify, hagnizo, purify your hearts, you double-minded. So purifying themselves, it it speaks about being ceremonially clean to participate in the Passover. And this was done through that ceremonial washing. It could be done by making sure that you didn't eat certain foods that were restricted by the Jews. So they could not, could not have bacon and eggs. The eggs would be fine. The bacon would be very bad for breakfast. They had to stay away from that. Jews were supposed to do that anyways. It's kind of funny when James, our brother, used to attend our church. He was living in Israel for 17 years. He told me one time that they had Jews in Israel that figured out how they could make pigs kosher by raising them on concrete slabs to keep them out of dirt, apparently. But the Orthodox Jews would never go for that. Um, but they they try but also the not eating meat of an animal that had been torn, touching a dead body. They even prior to Passover or the feast celebrations that they would have in Israel, they would whitewash all the tombs that if you're walking to Jerusalem, say you've got a journey some 50 or 100 miles and you want to take a break and sit on a rock, you better make sure the rock you're sitting on is not someone's grave because it could defile you. So they're pretty strict about this. And of course, food that was made without leaven was part of that process. But the people came in anticipation of Jesus. Would he come to the feast or would he remain in seclusion? The religious rulers had put out the word. We want to know if you see him, we want to arrest him. Now they were trying to be ceremonially clean. The religious rulers as well will find this out when they have Jesus on trial they wouldn't go into the courtroom of Pilate because of Passover. They viewed that as be making them unceremonially prepared for Passover, so unclean if they would go into a Gentile court. So as we read that account in John's Gospel, we'll learn that Pilate would have to come out to them instead of the other way around. In their mind, we are ceremonially clean, ready for Passover. But the thing is, is that they had murder in their hearts. Jesus had been at the top of their most wanted list. And now Lazarus would come into that number two position. In Psalm 109, verses 4 and 5, it says, In return for my love, they are my accusers. But... I have given myself to prayer. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. They were seeking Jesus. They were anticipating, wondering, is he going to come? And are we anticipating the coming of Jesus today? The only one who can truly purify our hearts. 
The Word of God tells us in Titus 2, verses 13 and 14, looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from the lawless deeds and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And it's only through Jesus that our hearts can be made pure today. We get into chapter 12. We see the anointing at Bethany. And I'll read the context in verses 1 through 8. It says, Then six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they had made him supper. And Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Then one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? But Jesus said, Oh, pardon, this isn't Jesus, it's still Judas. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. Then Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. So six days, John gives us a timeline here, as does the Gospel of Mark. And so when mapping out, which we'll be doing over the next few months, I'm assuming, as we actually have quite a bit of the Gospels to go in this final week of Christ, his death, burial, and uh, resurrection. So there's a bit of Gospel ahead of us. But John, and also we'll discover in the Gospel of Mark, they give us a timeline. John gives us six days before Passover. And Mark will tell us on the triumphal entry, he'll say, and then the next day, and then the next day. And so you're able to follow along that final week of Christ by looking at Mark's Gospel and as well as John's Gospel. And this anointing is given to us not only in John chapter 12, but we read about it in Matthew 26 verses 6 through 13 mark 14 verses 3 through 9 so it's not the only place that we read about this in scripture it is not to be confused with the anointing that took place earlier in jesus's ministry in luke chapter 7 verses 36 through 50 there there was a unnamed woman who was a sinner that's how she's described And uh, it was in a house of a Pharisee who was also named Simon. But to be leprous would mean you couldn't be a Pharisee. And here we're in the house of Simon, the leper. So it uh, tells us this is not the same. Here it is right before Jesus entered into Jerusalem. In Luke 7, it's early on in his ministry that this took place. And so the two are not to be confused with the anointing that Matthew, Mark, and John record compared to Luke's anointing that he records 
in Luke chapter 7. But this is six days before Passover. And Jesus came to Bethany again where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived. But they're not at the house. Uh, They went over to somebody's house for dinner. They went to Simon, who in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, it tells us they were in the house of Simon the leper. But he couldn't have had leprosy because those with leprosy were deemed unclean. And so if anybody wanted to be ceremonially clean to participate in Passover, you don't go to those who are unclean and have dinner with them. In the Jewish mind, back then when you ate a dinner, a meal together, they had a common uh, table. Uh, The dishes were spread out. Everybody ate from a common soup bowl. You all had bread. They didn't use spoon. You would not supposed to double dip, but I'm sure some people did as they do today. But uh, you take your bread off, you dip it into the soup, you eat the bread. But the mindset is that that which is being consumed in you is also being consumed in me. And so we are breaking bread together. We're having fellowship, koinonia, together. And they would never do this with someone unclean. They would never do it, especially prior to a feast day like Passover. So although it's not mentioned, we can assume that Simon, yes, had leprosy. There's no, still to this day, there's no known cure for Hansen's disease as it's termed today. They can, uh, if they catch it early enough, they can medically uh, cause it to kind of go in remission and it doesn't become an issue for the person. Uh, but there's still no, like, you can be totally cured of this, and especially then. So we can assume that this man had been touched by Jesus, that Jesus had cured him of his leprosy. At some point, at some earlier encounter, but there they are at this meal. So the, if you want to look, you can go to Le- Leviticus chapter 13. You can read all about leprosy there. Um, but the one thing I wanted to point out from Leviticus 13, that they would have to go in verse 45. Um, if it was a man, he would have to tear his clothes. He would have to have his hair head bare. They would cover their head with a shawl. He would have to let it be bare. He would have to cover his mustache, his beard, and he'd have to cry out, unclean, unclean. And so all the days of his life, while the sword was on his body, this was the condition. They were considered unclean. They couldn't dwell in the camp or in the city. They had to dwell outside the city. So it's obvious they're in the house of Simon. Something happened. Simon's not leprous anymore. And he has supper. And at the supper is Jesus, his disciples, Lazarus, and Lazarus' two sisters, Mary and Martha. Once again, we find Mary and Martha doing what Mary and Martha always do when we discover them in Scripture. Martha's in the kitchen. This is not unusual. If you have a group of people, let's say it's guys in the summertime and somebody's having a barbecue, you will pretty much be guaranteed that all the guys will be around that grill, breathing in the smoke, watching the grill master make whatever's being made. 
and all the gals will be gathered in the kitchen and working on the sides. It's kind of a common thing, helping in the cooking process, and Martha's doing just that. She's serving. But Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, we have to get out of our mind sitting as we normally sit today in a chair with um, the way we sit. We sit in a chair. When they reclined at a table for a meal, the table was very low. It may have been mm, around two feet off the floor, maybe two and a half feet. But it wasn't the kind of kitchen table that we would have. And if you go to Israel, you can go to a place where they will serve you a, a Passover-style meal at the low tables um, where they have you sitting on cushions. And so that's kind of close, but not quite. They would actually recline, usually on their left elbow, and then eat with their right hand, and their feet would go out from the table. So Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus would just be that she was on the outskirts of those who were at the table eating, and she was there at the feet of Jesus. And while she was there, she anointed the feet of Jesus. This oil, this fragrant oil, it comes from a pure nard that uh, is imported from the northern area of India, and it's very expensive. And it's not like our perfume bottles or cologne that we may have where you spritz a little on you. When you opened it, you opened it. You broke it open. And when it was broke open and you poured it on someone, the whole house knew that it had happened. I've been reading this and remembering the time when my son got into my cologne. And I hardly use cologne anymore, but there are some bottles there still in the house and uh, we, I believe we were at church. We came home, and as soon as we opened the door, we knew something had happened. <laughs> he had dropped it on the ceramic tile and broke the bottle. And though he cleaned it up, you do not immediately clean up that smell. It filled the whole house. And what I love about this scene is that Mary took what the Bible describes as her glory as a woman's glory is her long hair, according to 1 Corinthians 11:15, And she used it as a rag to wipe the feet of Jesus. But by doing so, she transferred the fragrance that was upon Jesus to her own hair, to her hands, to her clothing, until she became the fragrance of Christ herself. As 2 Corinthians 2.15 tells us, for we, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Think about this. Mary gave of her wealth, her glory to sit at the feet of Jesus. And I wonder what gift, what glory have we given that we might sit at the feet of Jesus? Well, Judas, the Bible tells us he was indignant indignant. Judas Iscariot, John describes him to us. And every time we read about Judas, the very first mention of Judas in all of the Gospels, whether in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, every Gospel author tells us this is he who betrayed Jesus. They may say it in a different words, but they basically let us know this is the bad guy. They ruined it. I mean, if they were writing a novel, you want to keep people guessing. And they're right up front. 
They let people know, don't get too attracted to this guy. He was a betrayer. But John gives us a little more information about him. His first mention for John was in John chapter 6, verse 71. He spoke to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he was he who betrayed him, being one of the twelve. But he also tells us in John 6, 70, that Jesus called Judas a devil, that he called him a thief in John 12, 6. John told of Judas, Judas being influenced by the devil in John 13, 2, and as becoming his betrayer, he tells all about that in John 18, verses 1 through 11. Now, denarius was a silver coin, and it would be like a day's wage. And so 300 denarii, pretty much if you calculate it out and uh, take into account for the Sabbath rest, the feast days that they were to take when people were not allowed to work. And so they customarily had a six-day work week. And uh, they took the Sabbath off. And then on the feast days like Passover, they would have time off there. So 300 denarii was about a year's worth of wages for one person. And so that that's a big deal. How many of you would love to have just as a bonus one day, whoever you work for, it's like we so enjoyed the work you're doing for our company. We just thought we'd give you a bonus of a year's wages. Just our gift to you. <laughs> It'd be a nice gift. Well, according to Matthew and Mark, Judas' complaint initially drew agreement from the other disciples. So Judas complained, and we think he's the betrayer. No wonder he complained. We'll learn in a moment he was a thief. So that's not unusual. But here we discover the other 11 was saying, yeah, just think, Lord, of what we could do with this. If we would just sold it, we could have helped the poor. He makes good sense. They must have really looked up to Judas. They elected him as their treasurer. Normally, you don't elect a thief to take care of your money. We try to avoid that in, in all possibility. And there are a lot of people who like to prey upon people. And you think about electronic funds that we have today and people preying upon people and all those emails and pop-ups that you guys also get of, you know, we notice something's wrong with your account. Just click here to straighten it out. We need your social security number. It's like, no, you don't. You stay away from that. That's my number. And I'm sure somebody has it anyways. Uh, <laughs> we were purchasing, uh, when I bought my motorcycle, there was something flagged weird with my Social Security number. And so I hope there's something there by the time I get to that age, because they're still taking the money. But we don't like the thieves. And you usually don't elect the treasurer who is a known thief. Little did they know that he was a thief at this time, but also would become their master's betrayer. But Jesus said in verses 7 and 8, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. Those words, she has kept this for the day of my burial. Those really stand out to me. 
In Mark 14, 6, it reads this way. Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. And what she has done, she has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. So we don't know how Mary came across this very expensive. I mean, it was a year's worth of wages. This flask of spikenard. We don't know how if she inherited it. She saved up. It was her dowry. She saved up for it, purchased it. We don't know how she came across this. And we don't know its original purpose, really. And she may have had a totally different thing in mind when whether she inherited it, purchased it, was given it. However, it came to her, the use of that, her plan for it, it was a prized possession, and she may have intended something totally different. But while Mary anointed Jesus as a personal act of love and devotion to him, God used her self, selfless act to prepare his son for his burial. In other words, Mary's selfless act had a God-ordained purpose. Eight days later, several women would come to the tomb where Jesus had been buried. Luke 24, 1 tells us, bringing spices which they had prepared. Their intent was to anoint the body of Jesus. But Jesus had already been anointed by the hands of a worshiper named Mary. Jesus said, the poor you will always have. And it's not that Jesus was saying we should not care for the poor. That is one of the things from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God wants, and he always highlights the poor, the widow, the um, fatherless, uh, the stranger. God highlights this throughout all scripture. It's not that we are not to care for the poor, those who have need around us. But Jesus is always to be our priority. Proverbs 14.31 says, He who is oppressed or oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors his maker has mercy on the needy. So this is what we are to do. But we sacrifice to help others because Jesus first gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. So the Word of God tells us we are to have a hand open wide to your brother, to the poor, to the needy in your land. Deuteronomy 15:11, Mark 14:9. Surely I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. And what a beautiful promise! Some 2,000 years later, it's still being preached today in the pulpits across the world as a memorial to Mary who gave of her glory, her hair, of her prized possession, this cologne, this perfume, and she anointed Jesus for his burial. God saw it in a different light than the disciples saw. They saw it as a waste. They saw it as something that could have been used to help the poor. Judas saw it as something that could have helped his bank account. He had a separate one than the group account that the disciples had. Yet God saw it 
as an act of devotion and worship. I wonder how God sees our acts of devotion. I wonder how they're seen from a heavenly perspective. Well, we close out in verses 9 through 11. A great many believed. In verse 9 it says, Now a great many believed of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not only for Jesus' sake, but also that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So people gathered not only to see Jesus, but Lazarus was there. Lazarus, they'd either seen it, heard about it. A man who had been in the tomb for four days had become this living, walking testimony of the power of God to change lives, to resurrect lives. And the people responded. They wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to see Lazarus. And so the people were gathering. And they were gathering by some two million. So I don't know how many made their way to Bethany. But we do know that during the Passover celebration at the time of Josephus, he recorded some two million people in attendance. And so it could have been a huge gathering. They wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to see Lazarus. You know, we have another possible resurrection by Jesus when Paul of Barnabas, when he was in Lystra, preaching the gospel. They had stoned him, drug him out of the city. They stoned him. They left him for dead. And it's believed that perhaps he did die. It doesn't say that he died, but... Acts 14, 19 through 20, having persuaded the multitude, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. Now, there could be some clues. If the, I hope, if somebody drags me out of this church and stones me to death, that you guys at least take a moment to say a prayer over me. <laughs> Look at poor John. If I'm dead, I'm dead. You can't do much about that, but you could pray, right? And possibly they gathered around to pray. It doesn't tell us that. But we do know that Paul came walking back into the city. And when he walked back into the city, that changed everything. It's like, didn't we just kill this guy? And there's no greater witness than those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, walking around as a living testimony of the power of God to change lives. And whether it's physical death, like we look at Lazarus and possibly Paul, we know spiritually that God has transformed the lives of so many in this world that the world, in fact, hates the church so much because we become living testimonies of the power of God to change lives. So the people wanted to see Lazarus, but the chief priests, verse 10 and 11, chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Today, you can be maybe an effective person in ministry, and there's so many avenues of ministry with social media today. You can have an effective ministry but when you become very effective for the work of the gospel in Jesus Christ, there are those who put you on the most wanted list. And they may try to take you down by false accusation. 
It's hard to get past false accusation. And they may take you down and try to take you out. For us, if we know it's false, then we just have to move on as if it's not. Say, I'm going to keep ministering for Christ. The attacks will come. It's through our association with Jesus that brings forgiveness of our sins, but also can help cause others to come into fellowship with Christ himself. And as I said before, there's no greater testimony than those who have been raised from and forgiven from their sins and trespasses, walking around as a living testimony of the power of God and his work in our lives. In Mark 13, 13, Jesus said, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures till the end will be saved. On Wednesday, since we're doing a prophecy update, I have it in my notes right here, but I'm going to save this till Wednesday. But every January, they come up with uh, 50 countries where it's the hardest to follow Jesus. And so this year... And I'll give the details on Wednesday, but in 2024, in January, it always comes out in January, almost 5,000 Christians were killed for their faith last year. Almost 4,000 were abducted. 15,000 churches were attacked or closed. And more than 295,000 Christians were forcibly displaced from their homes because of their faith. We have it easy. Somebody said something about me. They hurt my feelings. (laughs) It does not compare to what our brothers and sisters are going through. And a lot of it is in the Middle East and Africa where this has taken place. The religious rulers understood that it was because of Lazarus, because he had become this living, walking testimony that many people believed and followed Jesus And although others may hate us because of our love for Jesus, the question we should ask ourselves is our testimony of Jesus' work in our lives causing others to believe in him. Paul said to Timothy as he was writing his last letter to Timothy to the church in 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 12, Paul said, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and has called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of Jesus, our Savior, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality and light through the gospel to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher to the Gentiles. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Can you sing that old hymn? I know who I have believeth and am persuaded. Right from the word of God. The witness of one person could cause many to believe in Jesus. I want to be that person. I hope you do too.
So they sought Jesus as we wrap this up. They asked the question, will Jesus come? And it's only through Jesus can our hearts be made pure. And although we may attempt to improve our lives physically, mentally, spiritually, it's only Jesus who can truly purify our hearts. The anointing of Jesus there at Bethany, Bethany, where I'd ask the question, I wonder how our acts of devotion are seen from God's perspective. And although our acts of devotion to Jesus may seem wasteful to others, when Lily and I, in 1992, sold our house and moved to California, my mom wouldn't even speak to me. But Lily's dad, he could not understand it. I had a good job, and I did. And I don't know if we told him, yeah, yeah, we're going to California, and I'm going to go from $28 an hour to six fifty. Now, he couldn't understand that one for sure. <laughs> but I think in time they came to understand. Sometimes we have to give people time. But often they view it as a waste. But I wonder how God sees it. I hope he sees it as great devotion to our Savior, that we would, as 2 Corinthians 2.15 says, become the fragrance of Christ to others. And finally, the plot to kill Lazarus in John 12.9-11. We looked at how one witness of one individual can cause many others to believe. And there's nothing greater than a living, walking testimony of the power of Christ to change an individual's life. It can cause others to believe as well. And I hope that we are such witnesses as Romans 1.16. Paul again saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Is our seeking of Jesus causing us to become unashamed worshipers of Christ. I hope it is. Father, we thank you for your word that you've given us this day. And we pray, Lord, that you would just use it to encourage us and to cause us to want to draw near to you and to be those unashamed worshipers and witnesses in the days that you have given us upon this earth. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. 